Well, please open your Bibles again to Genesis chapter 2, end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3. As I said earlier, following, following on the series of studies in Jesus' temptations, I thought a logical next step would be to think about temptation, our temptations. Um, and this one, of course, you've heard of original sin. Well, this is original temptation. This is the, the original temptation that led to the original sin. Um, it's archetypal temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden, the beginning of human experience of evil. And it set the course of their lives and all of human life and human history uh, in the direction it's been heading ever since. Impacted the whole of the planet uh, and all of us. But what I want to do, though it's a a massively massively significant event, obviously, um, what I want to do is actually to try to learn some fairly simple, practical lessons for us in combating temptation ourselves. Um, If this is the the archetypal uh, temptation... Let's see what elements there are in it and how it led to their, their downfall and our downfall um, and what, what we can try to do to, to stand firm ourselves. So first lesson, I've got 10. I thought 10 was quite a good number, really. So I'm going to have to move fast. But 10, um, 10, that's 10, that's 5, that's 5, that's 10. 10, 10 um, lessons on, 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 on overcoming temptation. The first one is, remember that the devil is somewhere behind all temptation. Um, the, the devil here is represented as the serpent. Just how much of his, his identity Eve ever realised, or Adam and Eve ever realised, we don't know. He was a serpent. He was some kind of a snake-type type of thing, the reptilian type animal I suppose um, whether they realised what it was, what, it, what was behind it or not, I don't know but we know, if we read to almost a similar position at the end of the Bible, that this is to the beginning of the Bible Revelation 20, verse 1, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan We know who it was. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. But isn't that true for us? When we are tempted to do something that is wrong, are we always aware where that's coming from? But I think it's so helpful to realise that any temptation to do what is against God's will and God's word, ultimately, eventually, however it's clothed up, whatever through whatever channel it might come, Ultimately, it comes from the devil. And if we were to realise that every time, I think it would strengthen our hand. Because we would remember, I'm in a battle here. This is a cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and the devil. This is not just some little thing that is affecting my life, or some little desire that I might have, or some big desire that I might have. This is actually actually part of a massive battle that is going on in the cosmos, in the universe. 
I don't, I, you see, he's described in verse 1 uh, of chapter 3 here as being cunning. Cunning. Now, it can seem as if temptation is just our own thoughts. And James says that we are tempted when our, our own evil desires, from our own evil desires. But behind it is the serpent. It can come through other people. Nice people. Friendly people. People who have helped us a lot in the past. But nevertheless they can be and we could be to each other a source of temptation. If we're not very careful. It can seem to be something which is outwardly very, very good. I mean even the Apostle Paul describes the devil as sometimes manifesting as an angel of light. But always behind it, temptation somewhere is the devil. However, it's dressed up. So, lesson number one, bear that in mind. Um, it is a big, big battle we're in between good and evil. Know which side you are on. And I'll come back to that at the end. Make sure, well, I, I, I can't wait. Make sure you're on the right side. You know? I mean, if someone, let's say, some, if someone in Ukraine right now didn't know what was really going on and just what, was just wandering about casually in, in a minefield or something or near to the eastern border of uh, Ukraine, they would be utterly, utterly helpless, wouldn't they? They need to know what's going on. And we need to know what's going on. We need to make sure we're on the right side and not be taken for a fool. So lesson number one, somewhere behind temptation is the devil. Number two, lesson number two, remember God's loving nature when you're tempted. Some scholars have noted the transition in verse one of chapter three between the Lord God and God. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden. I won't make too much of this because there's absolutely nothing wrong with the word God <laughs> uh, as a reference to, to God. But there is a change here that from the narration to the conversation. And the narration identifies God as the Lord God. If you look carefully, you'll obviously see it's four capital letters. And I'm sure you know in the Old Testament, when you see Lord written with four capital letters, that is different from Lord when it's written with capital L and little o, little r, little d. When it's all capital letters, it, when, it's, when it's capital L and then other little letters, it's like a, a title, Lord. It's a, it's a description of his authority. He is, he is the Lord. But when it is all capital letters, it's a name. It's a rendering of the name which is often pronounced Jehovah or Yahweh. I am that I am. It is his personal name. So it is a personal identifying name of God, which is full of character and his covenant making, his commitment, his faithfulness, his reliability. All of his character is summed up in his name, this name which is above all names. And in the narration, he is identified as the Lord God. In the conversation, the word Lord is missed. It is God. So something of the, con of the character of God is missed out in the conversation. 
And as I say, there's nothing wrong with calling God God, nothing wrong at all. But what we need to do is remember who God is. He's not just a distant, some distant figure who had made, made the world and could, you can describe him however you want. No, he, he is a real person who is full of love and holiness and goodness and faithfulness and truth. Remember that when, we, when you are tempted. Not just a, <clears throat> a generic or distant God. But he's full of character. His decrees are not arbitrary. His laws are not inexplicable. But his decrees and laws are loving and faithful and good and kind. So that we might have the best life we could possibly have if we obey them. He is the Lord the Lord God. I think we, we could, I would perhaps go further now in New Testament time and say, remember that God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is. He's the God who sent his son into the world to save us. And if he tells us what's right and wrong, well, they, they're good rights. They're good rights and good wrong, bad wrongs, aren't they? He tells us with a loving purpose, the fatherly care. So his way is best. So remember that and say, well, God's way is best because of what I know about him. Third, third point is this. Beware of ambiguity. Chapter, still in chapter 3, verse 1, um, the serpent said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the, of the garden? Now, this word every is an interesting word. Some translations translate it every as here, and some translations translate it any. Now, there is a difference between the two, isn't there? But the word could mean either. And in fact, the same word is used previously in the same verse, where it says, more cunning than any beast of the field. It's the same word as in the question, is shall not eat of every tree in the garden. Have I lost you all already? No, you're still with me. I can start all over again. It's the same Hebrew word that's translated earlier on in the same verse as any and later on in the same verse as every. But there is a difference between any and every, isn't there? You shall not eat of every tree. Well, that means you can eat lots of them, perhaps. Some of them at least. You shall not eat of any tree means you've got to eat, or eat carrots instead or something like that. You know, you can't have anything that comes off of any tree at all. There is an ambiguity in the question. Now, can you imagine yourself in, a, in, in, the, in that position? Could you imagine if you were Eve? What does he mean? Adam, what does he mean? What does he mean? What was the rule? What did the Lord God say to you? Was the rule? Can, have, we, have we broken it already? Because we've been eating of some of the trees already. Have we, done, have we done wrong already? Is it any tree or every tree? Beware of ambiguity because it is ever so unsettling. And the, the solution to it is to know God's word, isn't it? is to know what God has said. Did he say any or did he say every? Did he say you, you mustn't eat from any tree at all? 
or there's just one tree from which you should not eat. Which was it? There are dubious issues for us and different Christians can come to different decisions and we should not act against our conscience. But in this case, there was a clear answer. It was just one tree from which they should not eat. And I think what we need to do is to thank God for very clear rules in his word and make sure we know what they are. So we do know what's right and what's wrong. And when, when, we are, when we're not sure, well, we can ask somebody else. Ask a trusted Christian friend. It's one of the elders of the church or someone else that you, 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 you look to for guidance and help. But know God's word for yourself. Beware of ambiguity. And play safe, obviously. Lesson number four. Be careful what you laugh at. Have you noticed how um, comedy has changed over the years? And things that we used to laugh about are now things we we can't even talk about hardly. Things have changed so much. And I'm I'm not saying... I'm not kind of doing a conspiracy theory thing here, although maybe there is a conspiracy behind it. I don't know. A conscious conspiracy behind it. I don't know. But we can be softened up by laughing about certain things that actually are wrong. And we become very vulnerable. Be careful what you laugh at. Now, um, did God, has God indeed said? Has God indeed said? That word indeed. If you look that word up, up the Hebrew word there, you'll see that it can sometimes be used in an expression of surprise or shock. <gasps> Did God really say that? Has God indeed said? Almost, well it could be lots of different components in that. It could, it could be just plain forward mockery. It could be feigned, fake surprise, couldn't it? Or it could be just trying to sow seeds of uncertainty. But one of them is very likely mocking. Shock. <gasps> really? But pretended, you know. God, did God really say that? Really? Surely not. That's ridiculous. Laughable. Beware what you laugh at. Yesterday's comedy becomes today's criticism and tomorrow's censure and next week's condemnation. Beware. Beware what you laugh at. You could well be being softened up to take a wrong step. Fifth lesson. Beware of putting words into God's mouth. Look, let's look at um, Eve's response. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, she was very nearly spot on, wasn't she? Very nearly right. But she added a bit. She said, um, God said, we must not touch it. Now, I spent quite a lot of time pondering this. I think there are two, two things to consider here. One of them is this. Was it, would it, was it wise not to touch it? And secondly, was she accurate in what she said? 
The second one's easy to answer. No, she wasn't. As far as we know, God didn't say don't touch it. So she, she, would, she made a big error of putting words into God's mouth and misrepresenting him. That was a big error. But was it wise not to touch it? Was it foolish? Well, here's another imaginary conversation between Adam and Eve before this happened. This is my imagination now. Oh, Eve, that tree does sound interesting. Yes, Adam, but remember God's instructions. Oh, Eve, I would just like to go and take a look. Adam, do you think that's a good idea? Oh, maybe not, Eve. Let's make a rule. Just in case. Just in case we can't stop ourselves. Let's say we won't go anywhere near it. Let's say we'll avoid it completely. Because once we've seen it, once we've touched it, once we've smelt it, maybe we won't be able to stop ourselves from eating it. So let's keep completely clear of that tree, shall we? And not even touch it. Oh, Adam, that's a good idea. Yeah, let's do that. Can you imagine a conversation like that? Might you not? <laughs> well, it's difficult. You know, we're not Adam and Eve, are we? We're not sinlessly perfect. Far from it. But wouldn't we possibly make a, have a conversation like that? How are we going to obey God's law? How are we going to obey the rule? Well, we'll just keep well away from that tree. So I would suggest that actually, was it wise not to touch it? Yes, it was very, very wise not to touch it. That lovely, soft, squishy fruit. Oh, now I can smell it. Oh. Go on, just a, just a tiny taste. I can I would I can say that I would think that was a very wise decision not to touch it. And if they did have that conversation, then actually the tree was already teaching them to discern between good and evil, wasn't it? It was already teaching them to avoid disobeying God, wasn't it? They were already learning. And they would have been learning it from the correct side of the tree. Rather than the wrong side of the tree, which is what actually happened. So isn't it sensible, and don't we sometimes make rules for ourselves that are actually stricter than what God has actually told us to do? Things like television. I mean, there are some Christians who will say, we will not have a television in our house. I know, I know lots of Christians like that. So we will not have a television in our house because there's so much rubbish on it. There's so much that would lead us into sinful ways on it. We don't want it in our house. And besides which, we don't want to pay the license fee um, because we don't want to support the industry that's producing it. Others say we will not have internet because there's even more rubbish and even worse stuff on that. Or if we do, we will put very strong filters on it to protect ourselves from the worst 
excesses of the internet. Some Christians are the subject of alcohol. Christians, some Christians say we will not touch alcohol ever at all. Uh, we won't even use it in cooking because we don't want to support the industry that brings so many people into so, so much misery, even in cooking. And when the alcohol has already evaporated out, usually. There were issues like this in the, in the New Testament days, weren't there, about meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And some Christians said, no, it's okay, it's fine, nothing wrong with the meat, you know, just meat. It's not in itself bad, evil, or intrinsically poisonous or anything. So yeah, of course you can. If it's being sold off cheaply in the market, um, why not buy it and cash in? And others might say, no, 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 because I don't want to get to anything that's been at all associated with idolatry. From my past, I know what it's like. I don't want to go there anymore. I've turned away from that, don't want to have any more to do with it. All sorts of different attitudes like that. And so they would have put up rules for themselves to protect themselves from what potentially could lead to doing something wrong. Churches have safeguarding policies, don't they? But I'd imagine you have a safeguarding policy. All organisations pretty much have to have safeguarding policies, it seems nowadays, which actually set rules that are more restrictive than... Hmm, dear, I've got to be very careful how I say this, haven't I? You know what I mean. <laughs> but they, they, they kind of stop us doing things which in and of themselves are not wrong, but we put up protections for... Everybody. So that just in case, everybody's whiter than white. And nobody can be led astray. But we restrict ourselves to, from doing things, even things which are in them, of themselves innocent. Because we want to put a fence around the sin. Yeah? And there can be real sense in that. For individual Christians to to have um, those rules. And if Eve had just said, oh, uh, to, to the serpent, Adam and I have decided not to go anywhere near it, that would have been fine, wouldn't it? That would have been wise and honest. The mistake she made was to say, um, God has said you shall not eat it, you, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So, the Pharisees, coming now into Jesus' time, the Pharisees were absolutely um, determined to keep God's law. And they did what is called fencing the law. So there is, there is the law that God gave, and they said, well, just, so we don't break that law, we're going to make a whole load of other laws so that we never get anywhere near breaking that law. Called fencing the law. Which, in a way, has some sense to it. But the big error they made was that they made their laws equally as important as God's law. And they were kind of therefore imposing their standards on everyone. And because the fence was so far away from the middle, they lost sight of what the law was all about in the first place. And so Jesus had a lot of criticism for them. Not because they were being careful, but because they were, being, they were imposing this massively heavy weight upon everybody they could not possibly carry. So, are you following me now? It may be sensible to make personal protective rules. 
and say, I know my weaknesses. You know, I know my weaknesses. And I will protect myself from getting anywhere near those committing those weaknesses. I know what they are. So each of us needs to work out what our weaknesses are, don't we? Where are my temptations? What protections do I need to put in to say, I want to walk with God, my loving Heavenly Father. And I don't want to break his rules. I don't want to offend him. And I will, I will make my own personal, my own personal policy that this is what I will and no further. The error is to say this is, this is God's word. And everybody's got to do the same as me. Okay? Because that's what Eve said. God has said this where he hadn't. So, it may well be sensible to make personal protective rules, but don't claim they are divine law. Lesson number six. Beware of blatant denial of God's word. This is where it gets really very black and white here now. Verse four. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. This is totally 100% false teaching and particularly in this one respect. There will be no punishment is what the serpent said, wasn't it? There will be no punishment. There will be no bad consequences of breaking God's law. It was, it is the first blatant lie in the book. Literally. There will be no punishment. There will be no adverse consequences of disobeying God's commandment. And that one blatant lie has persisted throughout the generations from then onwards and it is still the lie that is being spoken today. There will be no judgment day. There will be no giving an account. There will be no punishment. There will be no hell. There will be no separation from God for eternity. The same lie is being propagated in essence all the way through the generations and is still here today. It is the oldest lie in the book, literally. It was a lie then and it is a lie today. And the crazy thing about it is that we actually want it to be a lie. We don't want it to be true. We want our lives to matter. We want there to be judgment. We want there to be consequences of the way we live. Don't we? I mean, people do want that. They, if they are right, if someone is wrong, they want justice. But also, we all want our lives to be of significance. You know, does it, it doesn't matter, it makes the slightest difference whether I, whether I obey or whether I disobey. Whether I do good or whether I do wrong. It doesn't matter in the slightest. That means your life doesn't count for anything, doesn't it? But we want our lives to count for something. We want there to be meaning and significance and value and purpose in what we do. We long for it. Well, that means we have responsibility. <coughs> it means we are actually crying out for ju- Judgment Day and Judgment Day on ourselves. An assessment of our, you know, our annual, annual, was it annual assessment of how you've done in your job. We want that. We, we, want, we want an assessment of our lives. Yeah, you lived a good life or you lived a bad life. You did this right, that wrong. Counts to make our lives actually count for something. So don't believe the lie. Don't believe this lie and don't believe any other lies. 
Oh dear. <laughs> Number seven. Um, beware of making God out to be a baddie. Verse five. For God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. As if God's actually trying to make you less than someone made in His own image. As if God who created them in his image did not want human beings to have any idea of what was right and what was wrong. Wow. How's that in God's image? The tree would teach them what is the difference between right and wrong. If they ate it by doing what was wrong or if they fought against the temptation to eat it and did right. Either way they would learn, wouldn't they? But the serpent is making out, oh, God doesn't want you to be of any significance. He just wants you to be like any of the other animals with no moral sense. He's trying to ruin your life. He doesn't want you to reach your full potential. Trying to hold you back. Beware of anybody who tries to make God out to be a baddie. Lesson number eight. Don't try to be your own God. They saw the tree was good to make them like God. And they wanted to be their own God, to make up their own right and their own wrong. And that's another thing that's ha- happened all the way through and is certainly the case today. You know, I don't want some old book telling me what's right and wrong. I make up my own. I make up my own rules. I decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. I decide for myself how I'm going to live. Trying to make yourself into your own God, the God of your own God of your own invention, absolutely sovereignly in control of your own life. That was also what was at the heart of this. So beware of that great danger. Number, nine, I'm, I'm speeding up now. Number nine. There's no rush, <laughs> Thank you, but don't don't say that, Paul, because that really is a dangerous thing to say. I just might take liberties. <laughs> I sometimes think that when a, when the church says, you know, we'd like our service to end at such and such a time, that is like putting a fence around it. And I sometimes think, I mean, that gives me a bit of liberty, you know. They just. No, I know you haven't told me that. I know you have, but some churches do. Um, especially those me coming. Um, n- number nine, um, beware the idea that you've got to try something before you can criticise it. You know, as if. As if the only way they could become wise and understanding was to try evil. That is such a temptation in it today. How can you criticise this if you've never tried it? You know, how can you say this is this is a bad film if you've never watched it? How can you say this is harmful if you've never sniffed it? Or swallowed it or injected it or whatever, smoked it? How can you say that? You know, How can someone say you can't know what life is all about until you've tried everything? What a lie. What a lie. You can't know what life is all about until you walk with God is the, real, is the answer to that, isn't it? You know, someone says you can't really know what life is about until you've tried this and tried that and tried everything that's possibly going. Then, then when you've experienced everything there is, then you'll know what life is about. No, 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 no. 
You don't know what life is all about until you walk in harmony with God, in peace with God. That's when you find out what life is about because he has made you in his own image. He has made you to know him. He has made you to love him and be loved by him. He has made you to serve him, to fulfil his purposes. He has made you to, to be in his image. I mean, what a, what a privilege that is. So why go about spoiling that by trying this, this evil thing and that evil thing and chopping a bit of this off of yourself, this bit of his image off of yourself and wrecking another bit of, it, of his image in you and spoiling and defaming this, that and everything else and then think you're going to know what it is to live a life. No, no, no. Walk with God. Follow his way. That's how you know what life is all about. And just imagine, this is my imagination again, just imagine if Eve hadn't, hadn't succumbed. And, and Adam was there with her and, and, and he said, Wow, Eve, that was a close one. But you did well, my dear. Sorry, it's a bit old-fashioned, that, isn't it? You did well, darling. It feels so good to be on God's side, doesn't it? Just imagine. I could, I don't know. Look, I've got a ridiculous imagine. But I can imagine looking each into each other's eyes and dance, holding each other's hands and dancing around the garden and, and, and being so delighted in the fact that they'd faced this temptation and gone God's way and won the victory. And then they would have known what life was all about, wouldn't they? Happy with God in the garden. Well, that feeling can be ours. Can we overcome temptation? Wow, how good it is to live God's way. To follow him when the battle is tough. How good it is. But number ten. First, we need someone to undo what Adam and Eve did. Coming back to, um, to Ukraine now, someone who is unaware of the battle or has no commanding officer of whatever rank to tell them what to do, to lead them into battle... Just imagine it being, being, being lost in no man's land. Be, being lost with ammunition flying over your head. Being lost with perhaps landmines somewhere underfoot. And not really, not really knowing what's, what's going on. What, what is this, you know? Just, just utter lostness of it. The vulnerability of it. With all decisions having to be made on their own, with not really knowing the score at all. First of all, you know, we are all in this. We are all, whether we're Christians or not, we're all in this world of temptation. A door was opened by, by Adam and Eve, and we're all stuck with it. If we're going to have any kind of victory, we need someone to undo what Adam and Eve did wrong. So that we are not following them. We are following him.
And obviously that person is Jesus, who is described as the second Adam. In the first of our studies in Jesus' temptations, we looked at that first temptation, where Jesus was in the desert, having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and who was hungry. Understatement. And he was tempted to turn stones into bread. And, well, who could have uh, blamed him if he did? If the creator of the universe were to visit the earth, what would be wrong with them turning stones into bread? The most astonishing thing is that they would ever have gone into a desert by themselves and starved themselves for 40 days. What would have been wrong? Nothing. Who, who could have possibly criticised them for that? Well, no one. The creator. Except for this fact. That he didn't come on a sightseeing tour. He didn't come to walk the red carpet. He came to identify with sinful people 100% to be as much like us as it was, absolutely, it was possible for him to be. And that meant he would not feed himself by miraculously turning stones into bread because none of us can do that. And he came to be one of us so that he could be the second Adam, the second leader of the human race, the ultimate one who would undo the deeds of Adam and Eve and be a leader for his people, to die, to die in our place. Now he, though starving in the wilderness, did not eat. They, though in a luxurious garden, surrounded by food galore, could eat of almost any tree they wanted, except for one. Probably full to the brim with lovely food. We're tempted to take one, one, one piece of fruit from one tree. They crashed. He conquered. You see the contrast. Totally, t totally different environments. The luxurious environment, but they crashed. The harsh environment, but he conquered. He did not give in. We need Jesus first. If we are going to overcome temptation and live life with God to the full. We don't just need to realise who's behind it all. We do need to we do need that. And join the battle. We 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 do need to remember God's generous loving nature. He's not just some generic deity. He's not a baddie trying to ruin our lives, but he is the loving Heavenly Father. We do perhaps want to impose personal rules that that can be helpful to us, though not imposing them on everybody else and making them out as if they're God's law. We do need to remember that sin will be punished. We don't have to try evil before we can criticise it, but rather enjoy victory. But first of all, we need to enrol with Adam the second. 
King Adam II, who had victory for us, and say, you starved yourself for me. You overcame temptation such that I will never feel the, te- the intensity of for me. You lived for me perfectly, never ever sinned. You died for me in dark agony. I want you, I need you to be my Lord, my captain, my conqueror, my saviour, my friend, so that I can follow your way and one day dance around the garden of God, delighting in your victory for me. That's what you need. You need all of that, but you need Jesus first. First and foremost, enroll in his platoon to live life in his world to the full, to the full.